Good morning. Is this good? Hi. Good morning. Sharon Alcoholic. This morning I'm a member in good standing of Alcoholics Anonymous and the Pacific Group in Los Angeles, California. Meets every Wednesday night. If you want to come, I can give out my card. You call me. We'll figure it out. It's about six to eight hundred people strong. It kind of comes and goes. And we get together once a week like that. And the rest of the week we split up into all kinds of other meetings. Because it's L.A. and you can't drive very far, very fast. So we make it a deal on Wednesday night. It's quite a thing. And it amazes me that all these alcoholics can go into this huge synagogue in Brentwood, be very respectful. We have the best coffee. Johnny Harris, with 50, almost 60 years, makes the coffee, right, with a toddy. So he gets there early and puts a toddy in there, so it's really good coffee. Um, (laughs) And we're, we're gone by about 9.35, and you never knew we were there. <laughs> we're stealth. It's cleaner than when we got there. And I'm cookie girl. I'm the cookie maven. You have to have over 40 years to do that. So. <laughs> I used to have a cookie commitment at Ohio Street, which is one of our meetings. And I don't know if you ever heard Clint Hodges. He's at the big meeting in the sky. But he was an old-timer in our group, and, um, you know, I guess I had spilled some coffee on him or something, and I didn't mean to, but he yelled at me. It was the first time an old-timer yelled at me. Oh, my goodness. I uh, I didn't know what to do, but see, I'm the cookie girl there at Ohio Street. So Clint liked fig news. I remembered that. So the next week, I went to the store and just kind of bypassed the Fig Newtons. He didn't notice the first week. But the second week, he said, Sharon, there hasn't been any Fig Newtons. I said, I don't know. I didn't see them. Maybe they're out, Clint. And uh, I was a couple years sober. He was probably about 12. Um, so we laughed about that much, much later. But um, And then this just... To start out, too, this is about commitment, I guess, because there was a lady that I used to hang out with when I couldn't eat and talk or anything. In my first three months, I couldn't sleep, all of that. So she, her name was Junan, and she would have this old Chevy, and we would just ride around after the coffee shop, and everybody went home until we ran out of gas, almost. And she'd talk, and I couldn't talk, so she loved me. I had to sit there and listen. <laughs> complain about her sponsor. Complain about this. Complain about that. But Junan got me that um, washing commitment where I had to wash the ashtrays and the cups together in that meeting I went to. On um, It was up in Echo Park. And uh, she was the cookie girl there. Some reasons about cookies this morning. I don't know. I ate my biscotti from the plane for breakfast. But, <laughs> but thank you, Carol, for everything. You guys have so much in the room. I think that I need to invite people in to help me eat. Um, but there was Junan. She had the cookie commitment there. And we're waiting for the meeting to start. Now, I don't know about you, but there's the literature. There's, you know, there's the people standing up for sponsorship. But where's the cookies? You know, it's like... Alcoholics have to have their cookies. So Junan didn't come back before the meeting started. She dropped me off, go get the cookies, come back. And we're going, people are going, where's the cookies? And where's Junan, I'm thinking. And this uh, LAPD pulls up, and it was like 20 steps up to the place where we met. And we see this cop car, and he starts walking up, and he's got something in his arms. And then the secretary comes out and starts talking to him, and we're all gathered around. And he said, but where's Junan? He said, she's in the car. <laughs> I guess she shoplifted some things. So I got to take her in because they caught her. 
But she showed me the receipt for the cookies because she had bought the cookies. And she convinced me to stop and bring them to you. That's commitment. <laughs> so, God bless our Juna. She didn't make it either. I got to thank her and see her near Atlanta and some back of some old mansion with her chickens. And I could tell she put everything away that day because she was shaking. But I got to thank her for, for everything. Um, I'm wearing my little Sandy band, which is Be the Least Disturbed Person in the Room. Yeah, all right, yeah. It's a hard... I've snapped a few off. I've broken a few by snapping myself back into reality. Um, but that's what he was working on. You know, many of you talk about Sandy, and I'm sure you're closer to him down here in Florida, and probably many of you did go to his retreats. And and I got very close to him after my husband died because he loved my husband. He um, used to play golf with him when he could golf. And my husband was that kind of golfer. You were a better golfer when you came back from golfing with Casey. And Sandy loved the golf with my husband. And he wrote us a letter. Um, he just said, this letter should have come years ago. And, and it's just a beautiful little letter. But he said, <laughs> this is Sandy. This is the way his mind worked. He said, I can't golf anymore, but I sit there and I go through the holes in my head and how I would shoot and how I would get out and all of that. But every time I get in a jam, I call on Casey to hit us out of that, you know, the rough or where it is behind the tree because he was the magic man with that. And it was just a very beautiful letter that he wrote. He wrote it after his daughter. His daughter was murdered and um, it was before his second daughter died of alcoholism and and um, But his third daughter, I read that letter at his memorial, and he had said about her that she, I think that she represents the family the best. And she started to cry when she got up to talk. She said, I never knew, but now I know I'm my dad's favorite. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what we're here, to bring joy. Bring joy, bring, he bring healing. And how do we do that? Emotional sobriety, man, oh, man. Um, I, uh, I, you know, I started my with a broken jaw, and I didn't know how to even, like, my sponsor said, well, how do you know your life's unmanageable? Write it down. You know what I wrote down? I would have had matching luggage. If I came to AA with matching luggage, my life would have been manageable. <laughs> now, you heard my story, right? <laughs> That's as far as I could go. And uh, second step, she became my higher power because she scared me. And I was staying on her couch, so she was my first higher power. And, and then uh, one night after uh, a meeting, I was standing outside, joined at the hip with my new ex-husband, um, my first husband. And, but we weren't married yet, but we were just seeing each other. Um, we weren't supposed to be, but we were just seeing each other. But when you come back to a meeting and you're not supposed to be going anywhere with you know him, and we're both scratching from you know poison ivy, it's a little obvious we were <laughs> hanging out that Sunday. So anyway, she was kind of on me about that, and I'm standing outside trying to talk to a newcomer, and you know it's a woman, and I'm giving her my you know maybe I'm six months sober, and I'm all excited, and I'm giving her my best. And she's standing there listening, her hand on her hip. She was wearing hot pants and tube tops and bows in her hair and big long nails and springulator shoes. She'd clop, 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 you know. I don't know if you girls remember tube tops, but they were fun. Um, <laughs> so she's standing there listening, and she said, 
Okay, she came over and interrupted my, you know, my invitation to Alcoholics Anonymous at six months of sobriety. And she just looked at me and she said, you better get your own higher power. And she looked at him and she said, or you're going to get drunk. And she walked away and I thought, I kind of followed Janet, this is a new lady. I'm trying, you're taking away all my clout, you know. And she just listened to me and I looked across the street and now the newcomer and my, my husband-to-be and some other people are listening because, you know, it was exciting. The sponsor's yelling at somebody. And she said, um, you know, I've got to get your own God or you're going to get drunk. You better get your own God. So I looked across the street. There is a Beacons moving van. I don't know if you guys have them here. But it's like North American moving vans. But it's called B-E-K-I-N-S, Beacons. And I looked across the street and I thought, hmm, spelled differently, but it's like a beacon of hope. Um, I'm thinking about this. I'm starting to talk about it. Well, maybe Janet Beacons will be my new higher power. And I'm like that old bureau that has gone around in that truck for a long time and it's scratched and crooked and the drawer won't close, but God put me in those quilty blankets they put around furniture and brought me to you in the meeting in Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> and she just looked at me, all the newcomers, yeah, okay, that's good, beacon of hope, we like it. And she just said, okay, good, it's not you, and walked away. And I thought, I'll pray to beacons the rest of my life. <laughs> and I did, I, I prayed about it, I talked about it, I still get pictures of people going down the road, beacons, sending me a text message. <laughs> Even my son sent me one. <laughs> you know, he didn't really care much about AA for years. So that was my first higher power after her. And, you know, it segued into love. My God is love. I had a long way to go from being a fallen away Catholic who loved God and knew God loved me. But I didn't want God to know anywhere where I was for most of my drinking. So I had a fight with a priest. I've made it happen. He came out of the confessional yelling at me. <laughs> and there were like 10 people lined up on each side to go, and they're going, oh, my God, what'd she do, you know? And I remember walking out, and that priest is yelling at me, and I'm yelling at him. I gave him my one-fingered peace sign. And I said, you can have your God and basically shove it. So I didn't have a God in my life except hang alcohol because that took over. It was much more powerful than any sort of faith I had. And my first third step with Janet was on our knees. Uh, I think I was still wired. I don't think I could talk very well. We're reading, the, you know, 63. We're reading it in other books. She's all excited. She's all excited. And I'm like, Ugh, what is this? I need some water, guys. Mm -mm -mm. Thank you. Coffee will work right now. She was all excited. And she jumped up, and she was short, and she put her face right in me and just kept hugging me. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to have to hit her. <laughs> but then everybody will know. You know, at least I wanted to kind of please you by then. But what I did was I just relaxed into it, and it felt really good. So the way my brain was wired, because it had been knocked loose a few times, it said... I think I must be in love with my sponsor. I think I love you and I think I'm gay, I said to her. I think I'm gay. And she said, let's not make any major decisions in your first year. It's a good response. So that's kind of how I got to any sort of inventory, to any sort of looking at my wrongs, um, to any sort of that, so that I could at some point begin to be on to myself. And being on to me was like a huge ordeal because 
I'm not emotionally sober. I know Bill calls it the last frontier. It's like Star Trek, last frontier. And Bill had a huge problem, as we know, with depression. And he had a really hard time because he couldn't become white as snow, perfect with all his defects, because they would, you know, flip-flop on him. And, um, you know, we know that Father Ed came to him, tromping up the steps on a rainy night, Father Ed Dowling. And he thought, you know, this is when his general service was on the second floor. I don't know the address, but he thought, oh, no, another newcomer, you know, tromping up the steps. And Father Ed had a bad leg, so he was making a lot of crazy noise coming up. And he comes in and raining, and he takes his coat off, and he has a collar. And Bill is, like, kind of shocked. And Father Ed sits down and just starts talking about him, about the, the work that he did, and, who, you know, get, trying to get to know Bill. And I think he, at that point, you know, we have a lot of seconds and inches just getting to Bob and Bill meeting each other on Mother's Day at the gatehouse. Lots of seconds and inches. I think if... Uh, was it Abby that was shooting the crows off the roof of the house? That's what brought him in the jail where everything started to happen with Roland and his family. And if there wouldn't have been birds on the roof that day, would we be here? I mean, seconds and inches, silver threads, just, you know, that got us here. And then, and then when Father Ed came to Bill, you know, took him out of his depression and he told Bill, yeah, no, you shoot for perfection. You shoot for it. You shoot for it. You're never going to make it, but keep going. Keep seeking. Don't get stuck in the guilt. Don't get stuck in that. And um, and this is a uh, Bill wrote on humility, and that's where it's all going for me. It was getting humbled by life, getting humbled by my looking at my past, getting humbled at my list of resentments, getting humbled at looking at how I set the ball rolling, getting humbled at my inventory, getting humbled on trying to understand how to become part of the force for good in the world how to be the least disturbed person, how to be aware, how to be awake. It hurts now not to be awake. It hurts if I'm not aware. I am not having a good day. Thank God we learned to start our day over any time. So Bill wrote about, um, you know, he said, here were the same old goals, power, fame, and applause. <laughs> Besides, I had the best alibi known, the spiritual alibi. The fact that I really did have a spiritual objective always made this utter nonsense seem perfectly right. And then he goes on and on, and he says, Indeed, I still tremble when I realize what I might have done to AA and to its future. He realized that. And in those days, he wasn't bothered in areas of his life which I was standing still. There was always the alibi. I'm far too busy with much more important matters. That was my near-perfect prescription for comfort and complacency. And Bill wasn't happy being complacent. He was a seeker, huge seeker. So there he goes, you know, right away a rousing rebellion would set in when he would have to look at certain situations he talked about. These, I would exclaim, are really a good man's fault. So, well, if people would only treat me right, I wouldn't have to behave the way I do. Next in order was this. God well knows that I do have awful compulsions. I just can't get over this one. So he would have to release me. At last came the time when I would shout, this I positively will not do. I won't even try. Of course, my conflicts went right away on mounting because I was simply loaded with excuses and referrals. So he talks about, you know, guilt is the reverse of pride. He talks about um, how he got humbled by his own defects of character. 
Thank God he saw them. Thank God he flushed out six and seven and the twelve and twelve. So how do I how do I start being aware of the world? What were the couple of times that you know, I, like I told my son, just respond, don't react. And he, he texted me one day. I was having trouble at a at a job. <laughs> he said, "Wow, mom, that's good." You know. So every once in a while, I get one in on him. He doesn't know about. But I started to respect Alcoholics Anonymous. I started to respect what you had done for me by keeping me in the room long enough so I could start to believe. I mean, I think I always had faith. Somewhere there was always faith. I just left it at the bar a lot. And, you know, um, it reminds me of this. I love this story. I used to hike a lot, but I don't go up high much anymore. But I used to really like to go to tops of mountains. I didn't really go. I just did crampons and ice axes and things like that. So there was always a new view at every turn, and you had to kind of not look up at the mountain because you're thinking, oh, I'm not going to make it. You had to kind of look at your feet so you made good, you know, good traction on, on the rocks a lot of the time. And then I read this crazy story about a man that had this desire to do just a certain mountain, you know, over in Europe, Nepal. And he loved, he loved the picture of the mountain. He always loved that mountain, and he finally got to go. And he's going, and he's doing really well, and then he has to, he comes to this turn, and he sees there's a big, there's no way from this mountain to that mountain, he should go all the way back down. But he notices in the distance, he sees this figure, what it looks like is going through the air between the chasm. <laughs> and he doesn't quite understand, and he gets around the turns and the switchbacks, and he gets up higher, and he sees there's a man with a wheelbarrow coming across on this rope. This man's just bringing the wheelbarrow back from one side of one mountain to the other side of the chasm to the mountain which he's on. And he wants to get to that one where the rope is strung. So he gets closer and he sees there's a line of people. What is this? And he sees the guy with the wheelchair, wheelbarrow come over and this guy gets in the wheelbarrow and he turns around and he takes him all the way across on, on the rope in the wheelbarrow to the where you got to go to keep climbing the mountain he wants to climb. And he said, wow, (laughs) he's in line, right? And he's getting closer. And he says, well, I have faith. I can see it. It's happening. I have faith. It's going to work, but I don't know. Maybe with me, you know, he's having all his doubts. And then he realizes, I have faith, but belief is getting in the wheelbarrow. And we've gotten in a lot of wheelbarrows in our lives if you've been sober a little while. And, um, yeah, one of them was uh, <laughs> my family. I told you how I didn't fit in. I looked like everybody, or I would have thought I was adopted. Um, I told my younger sister she was, and she cried for a week. And I told her if she told mom, I would torture her. And then she told my mom, and, and she was fine. But she still says, do you know what you did to me? I was like, well, I don't know. It was me or you, so it was you. <laughs> You're younger. But my family um, is supportive and great, and we don't all live in the same place at all. And when I first got sober... They didn't quite know anything about AA. And my brother said he used to call it grandmas at holidays, especially the Thanksgiving one, where they used to sit me. When I went back, I was like 20 or 19, they'd sat me back with the children in the porch with the card tables. And I had made the big table, you know, but now I'm back there. So that was the day when I sat outside and watched them all inside grandma's house through the big front window. 
I knew that I didn't belong to them anymore, and that was the day I had to slide across the bar, basically my love of my family, that I don't belong. So it changed for me. But then I would call Grandma's house because they were all there on Thanksgiving, and my brother said Mom would be off the phone with me. I still don't talk to my dad, unless maybe she'd hand it to him and we'd talk about the weather, and then Mom would take it back. But what happened was he said that she would, how's Sharon doing? She, she's okay, right? You know, they didn't really understand, I don't think. And my mother would say, she's an AA. <laughs> because it was anonymous. You know, she knew it was anonymous. And I think they thought, if she says it out loud, I may not stay. So um, that was, my family knew nothing about alcoholics anonymous except the example that you sent home. The example that remembered Christmas. The example that called once a week. The example that came home, and even if I was uncomfortable, you know, I would do the dishes. Even if I was uncomfortable, I'd go to a meeting. They were fine with that. I remember having to drive. We had the drive-through um, telephones in my hometown. I'd have to go call my sponsor on a cold winter night. It was, you know, thank God for that. And I could just roll up the window and talk to my sponsor. And, um, but it was a long, slow looking at me sideways. What's going on? She looks good. What's this? Um, and, um, I was, my sister's wedding. It was my sister's wedding. I was quite a few years sober. I'd already started making financial amends to my dad. Now, this is the day I could have blown it. And I was on a night flight through Chicago and then into Cedar Rapids. So I was very, very tired. And I sat, in, I found a place in Chicago, it's still there, there's no gate, it's just seats in, in the United Terminal. I go there to have quiet time. So that morning I thought I better have some quiet time. <laughs> because I don't know about you, but that willingness and everything is kind of shrink sometimes at night. And, the, and if it's a really banner day, the vultures at the end of the bedpost going, we have to have a talk when I wake up. <laughs> I don't have that many days anymore like that. But there's, there's, this last year I did. I survived a big year this last year. Thank you, thank you to my seat here. So I'm in the, they pick me up, I'm in the van. Everybody's in the van. My dad's driving, my sister's in the front, Miss Mensa, who retired at 50 from investment banking. And they're talking about finance. And I'm thinking, hey dad, I, I'm paying you back. You know, maybe think I might have something to add to that conversation. But nobody's asking. And um, I'm kind of in the middle of the van, and then my sister's in the back with my mom talking um, dresses and what she's going to give for, to the bridesmaids for a gift. And come on, you, I'm L.A., Mom. You know, I just got off the plane here, fashionista, look, you know. And nobody's asking. And then my brother, that was the crowning. He, I, he's talking commercial, fi my, my brother-in-law is a commercial fisherman in Alaska. So he's talking fishing with Charlie, the new guy in the family. We don't even know him yet, right? And I thought, I, I taught you how to put a worm on a hook, brother. Come on. Ask me about fishing and no. It was like I was in my family, but I was invisible. And my, I realized I'm having a cathartic sobbing. <laughs> Like, like loud, they're hearing me, you know. And we're on the Cedar River Road, which is this beautiful road along the Cedar River to where I live, which that was my backyard, was that river. 
And I'm like cathartic sobbing, and my dad stops the van, turns around, looks at me and says, are you okay? I'm thinking, no, I'm not. You're all here. I have this little soapbox I can just, it's in my purse, you know, just a little travel soapbox I can go stand on and tell you all what I think of all of you that I'm not okay. And I heard a voice, a small, still voice, because I had that morning meditation. It said, get out of the van. And I got out of the van, and they gave me some water. I told them I was just tired. And they're back to their conversations like I'm not having this breakthrough, you know. It's very humbling. But I standing there in Iowa, which is, I mean, I wanted to be from Wisconsin. You could always tell I was Midwest, you know. So in a bar I had, so I adopted Cindy Lou from Wisconsin because they had cheese. It just, and custard. It just seemed dignified instead of pigs and corn. So I felt like pigs and corn. So I didn't want to be from Iowa. But so there I'm, I'm standing there, and they're all just kind of back to their stuff, and it's it's morning, and the morning light is hitting this corn, which is a corn, in front of me, and it's golden on top, and it's got little things flying in there and doing things, and it's this golden top over the tassels of the corn, and there's life there. And then I looked up, and there was... One lone tree and a cloud right by the tree. And I just had a moment. I thought, Iowa was very pretty. <laughs> Iowa can be very, very pretty. And I breathed, and I don't think I forgave everybody at that moment, but I got back in the van without destroying everything that you had given me to give to them at that point. And I'm so grateful I had that small, still voice because of my morning meditation. I'm so grateful that I didn't blow it because I needed to continue to make big amends to that family. So that was a day I look back on and I think being emotionally sober was an example of Alcoholics Anonymous. Being emotionally sober was that. Oh, thank you, honey. We got a Bill's reading on emotional sobriety, so I don't know. I do my due diligence and then I just let God talk. So, but you guys, you know, you'll enjoy this, his his talk at the Grapevine 1953, his letter. So you can take that home or ask questions or whatever. Um, and then there was another time that um, my sponsor said, I called her and I had thrown some eggs at my husband. I, sober, I wasn't a violent person at all. Not at all. But I, I told her I had thrown some eggs at him. And she said, well, I'll go clean it up. No one's going to clean it up except you. So I had to clean it up. And I had to talk to her husband, who had been in prison. And he said, you know what you do? You put your hands in your pocket and you walk away. You put your hands in your pocket and you walk away. And so I learned another physical lesson of how not to act like a total jerk with somebody else, um, especially my husband. And she said, pretend like I'm sitting in the other room listening to everything you're saying. That's a good one if you're trying to act better. It's a real good one. And nowadays, who knows, they might have a camera on you, God forbid. Yeah. Sponsor cam, that's it. We should work on that. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. I, I don't even want to know the people I sponsor. I don't even know. And, um, you know, I, it's, I was flying somewhere, and this, they had, it was, were delayed. So 
If I don't make my connection, I'm stuck somewhere overnight. And then I have to go to my uh, job at the law firm where they're using me. They're using me, you know? And so I'm, I'm kind of in that mood, and I'm standing there, and they got one guy bringing in the plane. The same guy I saw when I checked my bag. They got one guy to go bring the, you know, the thing out to them. One guy to do that. They got one guy walks back and gets the wheelchair. They got one guy to do the wheelchair, and I'm thinking, not going to make it. I got to get home. I got things to do. And there's this little guy here. I thought it was a kid. has a cowboy hat on, short, standing next to me. And I'm just about ready to say, look at that guy. You know, let's go call United Airlines. Let's tell him what's going on at this airport. You know, I'm not going to get home. Wine, wine, wine. And I didn't say anything. I just kept watching him and trying to breathe, <laughs> trying to breathe. Breathing is good. Breathing is good. <sighs> Women don't breathe enough. I know that. We have to exhale once in a while. So this little guy's standing there. I'm just about ready to blow it with him and just take everybody's inventory. And he looks up at me, and he's an adult, a short little adult <laughs> with a cowboy hat on. And he looks up at me, and he said, I'm going to Disneyland. Yeah, right? <laughs> He's all excited. He's probably 50 or 60 going to Disneyland, maybe for the first time. And he is so excited. And I just thought, oh, man, thank you, God. You put somebody right next to me. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, that's, you know, those are a couple of moments that I bit my tongue. I don't know about you guys, but I've had to bite my tongue a lot, um, especially when my husband dated, married, pregnant in that order. The newcomer in the room had the affair at 10 years of sobriety. Yeah. I had to bite my tongue. I had a scar for a while because my son didn't need to know how I felt about her because now he's got a stepbrother he goes over and sees every other weekend. Now he's got a stepbrother that he loves. Now my sponsor says you bite your tongue because she's doing nice things for your son. And she would pop in the car and look what Jill bought me and Jill took me skiing and Jill went to a movie and we're going to go to Disneyland. <laughs> I was 10 years sober and insane, insane because you all betrayed me. Now, victim cloak, oh yeah, oh yeah. I had hung it up at about seven years. I had hung it up, put it in the back of my closet at about seven years. And when I got that victim cloak back on, yeah, it surrounded me and gave me every righteous moment I could have about this whole thing. And my pride was out of control, but it was scratchy and wool and dark and musty. And my sponsor said, put that thing back in the closet. <laughs> so I had to bite my tongue. I had to act better. And um, this last summer, um, he was dating his wife-to-be, which didn't turn out very well. It was quite a year um, but he said his mother is alcoholic, and so he wanted her to hear one of my talks. And I, he hasn't asked in years. He won't even come give me a cake at the open meeting. Oh, mother, really? I grew up around AA and like Game Boy and all the other kids making mud piles. And it's like, I don't need AA, mother. And he doesn't. So he was coming back, and they listened to it on the plane coming back. They were in France. 
and he listened to my talk because he said, make it a good one. I don't really listen to my voice because it's Iowa. And um, (laughs) so I had one of the girls I sponsor. I said, here, just put in some CDs and listen. You know, I'm leaving. Find a, so I came back a few hours later. Her eyes are rolling, and she goes, I think it's a good one. So we downloaded it and sent it to him, and they listened to it coming home. And we had coffee, just him and me, and he said, Mother, I didn't know you felt that way about Jill. He had no idea. But in the talk, I talked about it because it's very useful. He got to have his own opinion to love this woman. He had to have his own opinion about all of that. You know, he got his own opinion about it. Not me. He got the actions of person that was being kind to him and helping raise him along with his stepbrother. So that was a huge thing coming back many, many, many years later. So I don't know what my actions today are affecting. I don't know where the ripples go. Every once in a while, if you're in the right place at the right time, every once in a while, you get to see a ripple hit the shore. And you know why that was done or why it happened. But, you know, that was me as a kid. Why is, why is the sun so hot? Why is this so green? Why, why are there fish in there? You know, why does my head torment me all night long? Why can't I not sleep? I hear the hamster three stories down in the basement, you know? <laughs> why, 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 why? I had a very busy head. St. Augustine says, pray all day long, use words if necessary. My feet are my prayers. My actions are my prayers. Um, so, okay, a couple of moments there. But, you know, I know that, you know, love is my new God today. And I know that I've got, uh, I have to get rid of fear because it is a corroding thread. Fear is such a corroding thread. And this, I just want to talk a little bit about my last year of life because um, 30 years in the legal field, um, I had become a convicted felon from that thing in Bogalusa because of the amount of personal, it was my own personal stash, but it was a lot. So <laughs> I wasn't selling. It was a carnival. We bartered. Everything was bartered. And I met another carny lady last night. She said, uh, I was a ride jock. It was like, all right. <laughs> it's like, look at you. And I just think, you know, mother, not ride jock. But anyway, so yeah, so there's, there's that, and uh, I just lost my train of thought. Um, uh, fear. <laughs> yeah, fear. And where was I? I don't know. Oh, yes. Thank you, darling. Okay. You can, you can sit there anytime. Um, after 30 years, by, I actually got pardoned from the state of Louisiana by a drinking buddy. There were three of us that were drinking buddies, Robin, Denny, and me, the three musketeers. And at the end of my drinking, I was a couple years ahead of them. They didn't even want to drink with me anymore. They didn't even want to drink in the seedy, sorry bars that I got fired from for having a bad attitude as the bartender because I didn't want to dance with the patrons. I don't care anymore. So I got sober. I went to the International in 1980 in New Orleans. I've not missed one. Every one of them has been a magical mystery tour, every single one of them. But New Orleans, 1980, my God, I have so many amends there, I can't even walk down the street. It's frightening. But I went to see Robin, and she came to my hotel room and fell asleep on my bed with the big book, and she was drunk as a skunk. But she got sober four years later. I went to where my other friend, Denny, owned the bar, the Blue Saloon in the French Quarter. It had a lot of music. And so a bunch of us went out, and 
I, I found her. She was behind the bar, and I stood there. And she said, I didn't know who this person standing in front of me was. I kept thinking, who is this? Will she get out of my way? She didn't even recognize me. And the word out in the street, because a lot of them were still alive then, you should see what that ANA has done with Mama Cher, because that was, that was Mama Cher, S-H-A-R-E, just to make my dad mad. Um, so she got sober six months after Robin got sober, and we got to meet in Oklahoma at a camp, and we sat there one day and talked about our gods, and it was like, how did this happen? And who's dead and who didn't make it and who's can't paint anymore because the hands shake too much and all of that, and there the three of us were talking about our gods. But Denny sold the bar, went to law school, passed the bar. So actually, the paper did a big article on her from the bar to the bar. And she worked with Sister Helen a lot um, with death row inmates. She's an amazing woman. She's still an amazing woman. But she researched my, she researched my felony and got me in on some big general one the governor was doing at the time, first-time offenders. You know, mine was a lot of pot and other stuff. That's what it was. That's what made it. That's what made me a felon. So I got pardoned, and I didn't know it, and she sent me this piece of paper in the mail for fun and for free. So I could work in the legal field down the road. And 30 years in the legal field, last year they decided to eliminate my position. And you know what? I smiled all the way through that exit interview. I knew it was coming. I had intuitive thought. I had been praying to God. I'm dying here. I used to walk out of my little office and say, you guys know where the defibrillator is, right? And they'd all look at me like, oh. I said, just kidding, but not really. They never got my humor there, ever. (laughs) But I was dying on the vine there. I didn't know it. I had a lot of physical, you know, stress-related stuff going on, and people would look at me and go, God, you look so tired, and I was. And, um, you know, they didn't treat me right when my husband died at all. That was a big resentment. I'm going to remember to talk about that one this afternoon because that was a big resentment, Uh, you know. It was like I had just maybe lost my cat or something, which would also hurt, believe me. But I want to talk about that one this afternoon and forgiveness. Um, But, yeah, so I work in the legal field, and they let me go, and... I just thought I don't have to do two and a half hours on the road anymore when I turned on Olympic Boulevard. And they had to give me a separation agreement, and I was really happy. And I went to my meeting, and everybody burst into applause when I said I got you know, eliminated today because they were just so worried about me. And it was a non-clapping women's meeting, but they all burst into applause. <laughs> and I, was, I, was, I didn't know who I was. I didn't know who I was. And I had to... Learn to sleep again. I wasn't sleeping very well. I had to learn to sleep again. I had to learn to, I got to go to my meetings early. I got to enjoy it. I hadn't been able to do that. I would go to work, go to the meetings, go back to work till 9, 11, whatever at night. And I was able to sit in the middle with you and just breathe. I hadn't breathed in I don't know how many years. And I had really the dark night of the soul this last year. I mean, there were times... Like Bill, I called out to God, what is happening? What am I supposed to do? And um, I had to learn to listen. I listened to you. I listened to the thought, which was do nothing. Just get better. Um, keep answering your phone. You know, go take a walk. Go hit the gym, something. And um, 
Yeah, I was pretty, I felt like I, my boat was out to sea and you were kind of waving at me, you know. One of my babies said, no, no, we're in the boat with you, Sharon. You just lie down. You've done a lot of work. Lie down. We'll row. I said, hell no, I don't want to know where you're taking me. I'll sit up. I'm not lying down in the boat with all my babies rowing. Uh-uh. So it was a hard year. And then um, my son's relationship, marriage, whatever it is, fell apart. And I was thrown a bile for like, I don't know, I don't know, four in the morning, throwing a bile. I only have one boy, and he was brokenhearted. We went all the way to France to get married, and it didn't work out. <laughs> so, you know, there was a lot going on this last year, and I felt like I didn't know where I was, but I kept doing what you guys taught me to do because my seat is here. Like I said, this is what makes sense to me. I know I'm an alcoholic because I come sit with you, and it makes sense to me. So, yeah. I am so grateful that I, my, I, you know that big pop you hear sometimes? <laughs> Something coming out of your butt, yeah. you know? It's like somebody had a tug on my ears. And, uh, <clears throat> yeah, it really happened to me. And I thought, you know, I, and, and I did a lot of talking to a lot of old timers. And, you know, my sponsor was really good. One day he just looked at me. I had like two minutes at the meeting with him. I'm sitting down. And he just looked at me and said, because you're defiant. Oh, damn. He's right. Oh, man. You know, so my little designs and plans, as it says in the book, I like nothing little. You know, my little designs and plans were my world was getting smaller with me and everything you had given me to have a big life, to be free. I was not free anymore. Um, I marched for freedom. I got tear gas for freedom just because there was, it was a lot of fun. Um, you know, I could be mad there. It was good. It was a good place to be mad. So, yeah, I, I had to give up being the victim again. Again, I was the victim. And it comes back. Um, I looked up the word emotional because I like words. And the word emotional, which I love, is a mental state that arises. It just arises. Well, I can't do anything about it. It just arises spontaneously rather than through conscious effort. It is often accompanied by physiological changes, especially in contrast to reason. <laughs> so, as we know, it centers in the mind, it says in the book. And physically, you're sober a long time, and then there it is. So, you know, I know that I had to stay teachable. This last year was 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 making me extremely malleable to be teachable to what there is. And I had to surrender. I had to have acceptance again. I had to give up. You know, you're either a host to your ego or you're a host to God. And I just would like, you know, I, I just, I didn't, I couldn't get in the wheelbarrow. You know, I knew it could happen, but I was stuck. And I could see the new view over there, and I couldn't get there. And then it started to happen. So you're getting a new view with me. Um, man, um, so, yeah. <laughs> the essence of all growth, as Bill sees it. I love that. What's my favorite one? 115, as Bill sees it. The essence of all growth. It talks about being willing. The essence of all growth is a willingness to change for the better. And then, there's something after the willingness. An unremitting willingness to shoulder whatever responsibility that entails. 
Yeah, I got to do the work. Faith without works is dead, definitely. Um, yeah. You know, there was a moment there when my husband was going through treatment, and he, they gave us seven months, but we got two years and two months because he's a fighter. And um, I came home from work, and he didn't like me to go to all the treatments with him. He'd have his guys take him. But, yeah, it was a big day. We met with the oncologist and went over things. I went with him. And I came home, and I'm, I'm walking around complaining about something at my job or something on the road or something, something, something. And I'm, like, walking around. And he's sitting on the couch with his arms folded. And I walk by him again. He said, you've been home 15 minutes, and you haven't made eye contact yet. This is a man that might, might even have six more months to live. And my selfishness and self-centeredness came in the door first. So um, I talked to somebody about it who actually was a member of that synagogue and was um, in my group. And he said, they have something on the door here where you, you touch it and you bring a prayer in and you become aware. It's called a masusa. I'm not sure. Okay. Tim knows. Okay. Wow, Tim, there's a whole new side of you. I didn't see <laughs> So I thought I have to take off that hat before I walk into my home with my man. That is my soulmate that I met after that horrible thing happened at 10 years of sobriety. One year, one month, and 14 days later, but who's counting? Um, so uh, my dad, who was Czech, had made this little welcome sign, says, but Tommy Voss. So I hung up by the door, so I would touch that and before I went in. And thank God, I thank God, you know, you learn, you want to know how you're doing, ask your family. You know, you want to know how you're doing, ask your kids. You want to know how you're doing, ask your neighbors. I'd ask my coworkers, but they didn't care. Um, truly, we're all little islands there. So that was huge, and I had to become a listener in my home. And we were um, sitting there one day, and we were doing our morning reading. When we, when we had time, we would. And he said, um, it was wind was blowing, and we were reading, and um, I might have been whining a little because, you know, it's, it's, it's hard for the person who's with somebody who's leaving us little by little. And I understand that, you know, and I forgive myself for that, but... I was kind of whining that day, and we were sitting at the table, and the Santa Ana winds were blowing. They were the, you know, the devil winds, all of that. They were blowing, and it's hot winds, and it makes everybody a little wacky in town. And and I, and I, you know, he said, "Sharon, you see the wind?" I said, "Wow, yeah, look at it blowing. You know, it's trees hitting the house, and things are mowing down the street. Yeah, I see the wind. It's kind of powerful today." And he was really quiet, and he said, "No, Sharon, you see the wind." I thought for a moment there I had that feeling, this is a moment, be quiet. I went right to Kung Fu Grasshopper Sensei here. <laughs> this is the way my mind works. So I listened to the word he emphasized see. And I said, no, I don't see with my eyes the actual wind. I don't think I was that specific. But that's what I meant when I told him I didn't see the wind. Yeah, and he said, that's right, you don't see the wind. And he was quiet, and then he said, you see the effects of the wind, right? Okay, I'm getting a lesson here. I like it. This is a moment between me and my man. 
And yeah, I see the effects of the wind. And um, he said, yeah, I was quiet, but he said, yeah, I don't like this cancer very much. It's not fun. I go into the, you know, the treatment room. There are people that were there last week. They're not there anymore. And, you know, I just go do what I got to get my juice. Called it that. And, you know, come back and try to eat and do everything you had to do. It's just, it's hard. I don't like this that much most of the time. But I don't know where God is in all of it either. But every day I go out, I put a smile on my face, and I look for the effects of God. That's pretty powerful stuff. All around us are the effects of God. I I walk down the street and smile at people. I was in Paris and smiled at people. I go, what's wrong with her? What does she want? You know. I got him to smile at me. It took a while, but I could get him to smile at me. I didn't want anything. But it's interesting when people start smiling at you before you smile at them. You know, you know you're bringing something good that's bringing in the door before you show up. So, yeah. Um, I, uh, I love that we can change. Freedom through acceptance. That's another bill. And this is where, you know, the rubber meets the road when we start to have to change. After we do our fourth and fifth, we start looking at our sixth and seven and, um, my first six and seven were all his defects, really. That's, you know, and I had to go redo it again. Um, freedom through acceptance. We admitted we couldn't lick alcohol with our own remaining resources, so we accepted the further fact that dependence, not self-reliance, that's my, that's my Achilles heel. That is it. Our own remaining resources, and so we accepted further that the dependence upon alcohol, if only our AA group, could do this hitherto impossible job. The moment we were able to accept these facts fully, our release from the alcohol compulsion had begun. For most of us, this pair of acceptances had required a lot of exertion to achieve. Our whole treasured philosophy of self-sufficiency had to be cast aside and left there. I'm saying that for myself. This had not been done with sheer willpower. It came instead as the result of developing the willingness to accept these new facts of living. We neither ran nor fought. We ceased fighting everything and everyone. But except we did, and then we began to feel free. And uh, my self-reliance was based on my survival to get to you. And I told you last night, I'm a survivor. So I had to have God reliance instead of self-sufficiency. And I was very good at self-sufficiency. I um, ran alone at the end. I didn't even have a dog at my heels at the end. I didn't even want any responsibility. And it was me and it was no God. It was me and the bottle. And when the bottle was, was removed and I didn't have the craving, it was like I had 31 days of sobriety. That was powerful because I put my hand up for under 30 because somebody would always do it for me. I don't know how they could tell. <laughs> and then I pulled it down because I went, 31 days. I didn't. I had that moment where you have the chills down your spine. I had my first little like kiss from God that, yeah, I got gotcha. you. I did this. You just showed up, and you've stayed. So, yeah, I uh, had to really realize that I'm not doing this. It's a we admitted. We. We share what we have here. We come and we connect with each. I need a connection. 
I didn't have connection except for the bottle. I need connection daily with you to stay in the present. And in the present, like this morning, I sat outside on that beautiful balcony and I heard lots of nature, lots of life, lots of God. Um, I heard a dog walking around. I heard somebody else walking around. And, and, and I just was so grateful to be in the middle of this amazing, by seconds and inches, divinely inspired program called Alcoholics Anonymous. Because I don't think my kid needs it, but if he has one, they may need it. And I would hope that if they walk in the door, at some point down the road, they find one alcoholic talking to another alcoholic to reduce the differences so you can stay a day and go, wow, yeah, you understand. Because nobody ever really did. And you were telling my secrets when I got here. And I knew I wasn't doing it. So, yeah, I have to continually, continually, you know, I have to continually, like the, Sandy, the riddle of our existence. Okay. You know where that is, right? Mm-mm-mm. Ah, I hope I can find it. Ah, I can step 10. Yeah. Okay. In step 10 and the 12 of 12, having been granted a perfect release from alcoholism, why then shouldn't we be able to achieve the same amount of a perfect release from every other difficulty or defect? Yeah, right? This is the riddle of our existence. The full answer to which may be only in the mind of God. Okay, there it is. Nevertheless, at least a part of the answer to it is apparent to us. So whatever part of the answer is available to me today is what I want to do. At least then my awareness will let me bite my tongue, put my hands in my pocket, listen to you, walk away, start my day over. I, I learned to start my day over at, at my work so many times. You've taught me how to be a good employee. I told you about waiting tables. Then I went to work for this travel agent and he would walk around and slam books on the, everybody's desk. I'm God here. I'm God here. And I thought, no, he's not. No, he's not. You know, then I'd go in the bathroom and get on my knees because it was carpeted. It was so good. And then I would go call my sponsor at lunch, and she'd say, you know what? You can give him the finger under the desk, but you smile at him above the desk. <laughs> and that was as far as I could go with that one. And it worked for me. I stayed there a while. I learned a lot. And... Um, you know, there was there were times when my sponsor said, you have to put your brain in the trunk of your car. You have a car now. So I would go to work, I would lift the trunk, I would put my brain in, close the trunk, because my mind was sick, and I would go to work and not think, and just work. And then I would come back out, and there was always a security guard going, and there she comes again. <laughs> Open the trunk, put it back in my head, and then all the way home we could talk about it. But they taught me to not think, to work. And you guys were so smart with me. You gave me actual physical things to do that I could feel like I had done something and then I could act better. I have to feel like I'm doing something and following direction. My sponsors have always been louder than my head. Thank you, God. But giving up self-sufficiency, man, it creeps up on me. It is, it is my evil twin. It is my evil twin. It takes me away from you. It takes me away from God. I'm going to end with this story. My husband had a beautiful memorial. Beautiful memorial. It was the first day that that golf club had sun up in Palos Verdes. 
um, the bagpiper came over the hill, right? Um, he didn't like paper plates or, pa or you know, plastic forks. So all of the people that I sponsored, people they sponsored, brought their china and silver. He liked carrot cake. I had people making carrot cakes all the way they liked to make the carrot cakes. He liked oatmeal cookies. We had oatmeal cookies and carrot cakes and his two favorite flowers. And my son did a fantastic video. And this was like all the people that I was surprised that came and all the people that were there to love him. And we even had a second line, if you know what that is. In, in New Orleans, they wave the hankies or the umbrellas and they celebrate the soul going at the end. We had a, a second line. Everybody had a hanky on their seats. and It was really beautiful. And the next morning, I don't know, 5 a.m., my evil twin woke up. <laughs> you shouldn't have done this. People stood in the sun. Did everybody do that guest book? Maybe they were hungry. Maybe they didn't want dessert. Maybe they wanted food. And you know you didn't talk to that person. You saw them across the room. And that video, you know, you should have showed it two or three different places. What's wrong with you? One of the most beautiful days of my life was being taken away by this. And it was like so incongruous with everything I had just been through. And I know many of you have been with people that have passed away that you love and the space that you're in for a long time is very spiritual. It's very beautiful. And she took it all away. She was trying hard. I thought, man, well, I just, I don't know, I tried to strangle her. It didn't work. And then, uh, I don't know if it was that day or the next day, I had a moment. I thought, you know, I think we're done. She's been good to me. She's had given me good instincts to survive. I hitchhiked north, south, east, west. She was good with me. She helped me through so much. She's a survivor. She's my self-sufficiency. And I thought, I'm going to take her for a ride. <laughs> so I made a, a tuna fish sandwich. I cut it corner to corner like she likes it. I put it in a bag. I don't remember if I made a flower on it or wrote Evil Twin. I don't even remember. I was just on a mission. And I stapled the top shut. And I went and put it in the car, and then I went in and got her. I said, come over, we're going for a ride. I opened the passenger door, sat her there, so you're doing a fish sandwich. I went around, I got in the car, and I said, we're going for a ride, evil twin. And I took her somewhere down by the beach where there was a bus stop. And I walked around, and I opened the door, and I said, you can get out now. Thank you for all your help all these years. You've been great, but I don't need you anymore. And here's your tuna fish sandwich. And I set it on the bus stop, closed the door, and I drove home. She stayed there for a while, but then she found her way back. <laughs> and, I, and I learned, right? I'm not stupid. Now I do peanut butter and jelly because if a homeless person finds that sandwich and it's been sitting in the sun all day, see, we got to think bigger, right? we got to think about everybody, even the guy who's going to eat the mayonnaise and maybe get sick, right? So you've taught me how to... Every day, do a little bit better. Every day, be part of the force for good. Every day, create a ripple in the pond of life. Don't be throwing my mud clots in it, dirtying it up. And I thank you for that. So I hope we got something out of this. We're going to have questions and answers. Yay. Okay. So I'll repeat the question for Deborah back there. 
So does anybody want to talk about something or ask something? Or maybe I need to clarify something. Sometimes I get off on tangents. Yes, thank you. Steve Hi, Steve. Hi, Steve. That's a good one. He wants me to go over the difference between belief and faith. Well, it's kind of like they're connected. So I don't think you can have one without the other, for sure. Um, I have faith. I have faith that I'm going to be okay today. But my belief is in my actions. That's to me, is my belief. My belief is my actions. Because if they're based on honesty, what are honesty, love, open mind, what, what are the four absolutes? Come on, help me. Honesty, purity, selflessness, and love. If they're based on those things, I can't say it, but I can do it. So that's my belief, is that I can do that. And, and my faith has taken me to the brink of my belief. And I've had to take it into the world so that I stay sober, so that I can affect the lives of others staying sober. Because my life is not about me anymore. I try to make it about me, and it's painful. You know, I think about, you know, sometimes the birds sound like diamonds. They're so beautiful. You know, sometimes just taking a walk and knowing that it's all in order and listening and looking. That was one of my first things my sponsor had me do was walk and look for the colors on my walk. And and then, you know, I, I was not good about getting to my higher power. I had to say, take a walk and say the Lord's Prayer three times without thinking about yourself. <sighs> and that was my morning meditation because I was too anxious. So I would walk and say the Lord's Prayer. Maybe I'd get through two and I'd go, oh, you just did two. <gasps> you just thought about yourself, you know, and I never, ever made it. But the belief that I was doing my best was enough to fill me up with God's love. It's God's love. It's it's love. It's Chuck said love is what do you say? Thousand to nothing. It's not fifty fifty. It's not ninety ten. It's a thousand thousand to nothing. We love for fun and for free. Kind of a long around answer, but we can take a walk later and believe it's all in order if you want. Okay. Thank you, Steve. I know you guys are fun. <laughs> but I didn't know you were all well. <laughs> yeah, honesty, purity, unselfishness, and love. It's all God. And, um, okay. Nothing else? All right. Um, Thank you for being with me this morning and allowing me to be in your beautiful state with you beautiful people. I um, I know that um, the sycamores, wow, I was really moved by the sycamores driving here. I really like trees. I really like trees. And uh, I'm going to tell you about aspen trees, and then you can turn off the tape, Deborah. There's an aspen grove in Colorado. It's the root system. They're all connected. And this aspen grove is so huge you can see it from space. It's You can see it from space. And the aspen trees, I don't know if you've ever been there, they have a sound in the summer called quaking. And each leaf 
hits each other. And the reason they quake is so that every leaf on the tree gets a shot at photosynthesis. Everybody in this room gets a shot at sobriety. So they quake so they all get the photosynthesis so they can grow. But in the growth of this huge root system, there's the, the elders that are tall, tall, tall. And then there's the newbies that are short, short, short. And the newbies don't see the sunlight yet. They have to believe that the guys up there are seeing the sunlight. And the guys up there bring the sunlight down to the roots and feed it to the little ones who need the sunlight. They don't even know they're being fed the sunlight yet. But they're growing, and then they start believing, and they tell the other ones, hang in there, it's going to get better, you know? (laughs) And that's the way they grow, is they help each other. And the little ones are on new soil. And the old ones have taken out a lot of the good stuff in the soil, you know, the nitrates and everything they need. And the little ones feed the elders the new soil, all of the new good chemicals in the soil. So we all need each other here. It's a we program. So you're my Aspen leaves today. Thank you.